Hey everyone, I'm Michelle Spillane, one of the worship leaders here at Sanctus Church, and you're listening to the Sanctus Church Podcast. Our mission here at Sanctus is to glorify God by enabling people of all ages to become fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. Let's prepare our hearts for the message today. Sanctus Church, good morning, good morning, good morning. So glad that you're with us today. Again, Pickering or maybe Port Perry, Bowmanville, maybe at Ajax or maybe online. Or maybe again, you're listening to this months or years later. No matter who you are, as we say every week, you're most welcome. One thing that causes sheer panic to any human being that I know in our society is this. It's when you lose your cell phone. I think you all can relate to this. You put it down, you don't know where it is, especially if in a public place, and you're starting to go, oh my goodness, my banking's on that. It's so expensive to actually pay for it or replace it, or I'm on a plan, and you just like frantically search. I remember I was at the mall dropping off my two teenage daughters, and I went to pick them up later, and as they were walking out, my my middle daughter literally freaked out. She panicked. I said, what's wrong? And she said, I don't know where my phone is. And she sort of did the body check we've all done before, And she says, I think I left it in a a dressing room. And I just, the sheer panic, and she ran back into, I don't know, one of the stores I'm rarely in or understand. And she went in, and I ran in after her, and then she went back in the change room, and there it was. And she, she picked it up, and when she turned around and looked at me, it was like all of this anxiety sort of melted out of her body, and she just experienced like, oh, relief. It's that feeling, it's that emotion, that it's that state of being that I actually want all of us to lean into today. See, we're now in chapter 5 in Romans. And again, if there's one emotion that's going to summarize what's coming next, it's not anger, it's not sadness, it's not happiness, it's not joy, it's <sighs> relief. From chapter 1, To the middle of chapter 3, God, through his word, remember, challenged us, showed us in stark detail who we were, what we're really about. And it's been so difficult, so hard, so against what we've been taught. We've been offended. We've been bothered. We've been agitated either by this new information or this confirmed knowledge that, well, we actually are under the wrath of God and God's right to bring it. And we had serious conversation about our sin and our inability to deal with our bondage to sin and the reality of Satan and his role in our life and the inability to stop death. But God didn't leave us to our own devices. That famous verse, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, does not need to be the end of our stories. Remember, like we've been discovering, the, the gospel, the good news of Jesus. Heaven's power itself has overcome both deserved wrath and our original fallenness and our ongoing sins. Like we heard last week with Pastor Joel and the week before with myself, what good news of great joy for all people. Salvation is transferred. It's not bought. Salvation is free. It's not earned. Salvation is a display of love. It's not about duty or trying to get God to look at us. Salvation is given by this simple thing called faith. And if and if you choose to embrace Jesus, then all these incredible truths become your reality. Remember, we walked through all these things Paul had taught us, like in the law court, where we are actually declared guilty before a perfect judge, God himself. Then we are given right standing. We are justified because of the work of Jesus in the world where we basically are in some massive, large spiritual slave market to sin, death, and the demonic. Jesus walks in. He redeems us. He pays off the ransom 
ransom and he actually brings us out and makes us children and friends. When we face a holy God in this life and of course on judgment day, we're going to be covered by, by Jesus at the altar because he's our high priest and he's our mercy seat and he's our sacrifice and he's our scapegoat. This is all the amazing things that Jesus has done for us. He's pardoned us. He's liberated us. He's filled in the gap for us. He's even modeled for us what an amazing life can look like now. Now, Paul, knowing that this is all true, also knows what's coming next. I mean, we have to see more, understand more. He begins to answer the next set of questions, which many of us regularly think about on our journeys. Now what? Yes, God has done so much for me, but what about today? And what about tonight? And what about tomorrow? And what about next week? I mean, yes, I have peace with God, but how does that even affect my everyday life? Paul's about to say, you don't wait till the new heavens and the new earth. And as you're waiting, just living a boring, religious, no life change, no hope experience. Hope, thankfulness, life transformation, joy is not only possible, it can truly happen. And so as we come to chapter 5 in Romans, there's like this really significant device, uh, this decisive turn. We, we now have been given peace and grace, and that's true. But chapter 5, 6, 7, and 8 is now all about certainty and assurance. And I don't know if you've ever thought about this before, but when you have certainty and you have assurance, there's this incredible byproduct called rest. The gift in the middle of this part of Romans is the deep missing thing in so many of our lives. Real deep relief and rest. And I'm not just talking about sleeping at night. I'm talking about rest. Paul says this in Romans 5.1. Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I, I just want to do this. It's sort of a repeat from the last few weeks. He says we have been justified. We already possess the work of God on our behalf in Jesus. And like I shared a few weeks ago, justification is one of those words we should all just know. It means we're in good standing with God. We're made righteous before God. We're acquitted before holy God. We are guilty, but through the work of Jesus, we're declared not guilty. We're put in right relationship with God, and all of our sins, past, present, and future, are accounted for, dealt with, and removed because of the incredible work of Jesus. And the result is we have peace with God. The idea of peace, the word itself, think about it. You can say the word peace so easily. You can ask for peace. You can declare peace. You can write songs about peace. You can write blogs about peace. You can plan for peace. But look at human history. Actually, look around now. Rarely found. What's the opposite of peace? Uproar. What's the opposite of peace? War. What's the opposite of peace? It's carnage. What's the opposite of peace? It's brokenness. I mean, is this not what even Paul said really bluntly about our own standing before God pre-Jesus? Colossians 1.21, once we as human beings were alienated from God and we were enemies, wow, enemies in our minds because of our evil behavior. But now, if you've embraced Jesus, we're no longer an enemy of God. We're a friend of God because the peace that Jesus earned for us. See, it is utterly impossible to experience inner peace by looking inside yourself. You're not going to find peace there. 
You can't achieve peace by your own power because we were not at peace with ourselves, others, creation, or God. So God was not at peace with us. And peace means so much more than lack of hostility. This is a Jewish understanding. It's the word shalom. It means wholeness. It means well-being. It means prosperity. It means security. It means friendship. It means salvation. It means justice. It means universal healing. It means reconciliation. It means a non-broken creation. Now, this peace with God in the now and not yet is experienced only in part now when someone becomes a Christian. See, if you become a Christian, Jesus becomes Savior and Lord, and you become the place where the kingdom of God, that is the lordship of God, the reign and rule of God, is experienced in part. One day, all of creation will be filled, all the universe will be filled with this reality, and there will be physically, spiritually, relationally, everything, peace. That's why at Christmas, when the angels... (laughs) Chanted in Luke 2 at his birth, they said, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to those in whom his favor rests. It's the beginning of the thing. Now, notice says, notice Paul says, We have peace now. Not in the future. We've got it already. But he goes so much farther. Let me read the verse again. Okay, Romans 5:1. Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, watch this, through whom we have, underline this, gain access by faith into this grace in which we, underline this too, we now stand. Gained access is such a powerful idea. Now, in Paul's day, in the secular sense, here's how one person outlines it. This was the idea of the process of being ushered into the court of the king and then being announced that you are present for the king's discussion and then the ruler says you have the opportunity or right to speak to me the closest thing i think we've got to this today is when we watch over in britain uh, the queen has just died now charles who's the new king someone is announced and then the person walks in and the king says you can now speak to me now here's the powerful thing because of jesus Every single time we pray, every single time we open the Bible, every single time we take communion, every single time we go to church, we get announced individually into God's very presence, and our king wants us to be there. Now, understand this. God is holy. God is perfect. And the Bible clearly says that when sin walks into God's presence, it literally burns or dies. Sinful human beings just can't walk into the king's presence. If they do, they they, they die. See, a Jewish person hearing Romans 5 for the first time 2,000 years ago, or even today, would say, this is wrong, this is unthinkable, this is blasphemy, because a human being can't just walk into God's presence. Remember Moses? Moses says to God in Exodus, I want to see your glory. And God says, you can't see my glory. If I show you my full self, you're just going to die. Oh, but here's the profound thing. Because of Jesus' work, that all ended. Jesus made God the Father accessible to any person, Jew, non-Jew, because of his work. This is why the writer of Hebrews says this in Hebrews 4.16. You get to draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. In other words, we get to talk to God. We get continuous introduction because of grace, unsought, undeserved, unconditional love of Jesus. And then Paul says, not only do you get the perpetual introduction, and the king's like, come on, I want to hear from you. You're my kid. You're my child. I love you. Then he says, oh, we now stand in this. Now, this phrase is so incredibly important, especially if you're struggling. 
This is permanent and it's immovable. We have constant access to God. But John, you don't understand, I really messed up this week. I was rude to my parents or I looked at porn or actually I cheated. No, no. You now stand. I don't really feel God these days. No, no. You now stand. I'm really doubting my faith. That's okay. You're not the author of your faith. Jesus is. You now stand. Someone's like, oh, no, I'm doing great. I'm loving God and I'm so excited. Great. You now stand. See, this is the point. We get permanent, continuous access to God, and he's the one that establishes us. It's not based on us. And that's why Paul says in verse 2, the second half, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. The result is we get to put our boasting, our excitement, our joy in Jesus' work. And this little phrase divides us out from all sorts of other philosophies and religions. I love when one person wrote it like this. Eastern religions offer no hope with their endless nightmare of reincarnations. Existentialists see the future as an absurd idea. Atheistic evolutionists neither have hope nor comfort. Oh, but we as Christians? Ah, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So Paul brings us to this amazing place of comfort and rejoicing and real hope. But Paul also knows, and God who's helping him write this knows, How in the world do we see hope in the middle of life, during suffering and boring times and I don't feel okay times and fearful times and when darkness actually touches me and I'm hurt times and in the everyday boring grind times? Paul's not unrealistic. He's not setting us up. This isn't a game. He says, oh, oh, don't misunderstand. If you're a Christian, you're going to suffer in this world. But the suffering should not break your faith, but actually God's going to use the darkness of this world, the brokenness of this world, to lead to a greater thing. This is so revolutionary, if you actually believe it. Romans 5.3. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Now, the word suffering here is a pretty generic term. Tribulation, persecution, distress, hostility, oppression, extreme pressure. In other words, this suffering can be financial. It can be professional, relational, psychological, spiritual, mental, sexual, physical. Like, it's just living with hurt. And interestingly, what Paul is saying is suffering can lead to incredible maturity in the Christian life. The Bible's full of this. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob battling with God, Joseph in prison because he just said the truth or he actually didn't give in to sin or Moses and Pharaoh and David writing all these psalms about how things are so terrible and Peter denying Jesus. And other than John, every single one of the apostles is murdered for the Christian faith and John sent into exile. Oh, right, and then there's just Jesus and the cross. But wildly, Paul says that suffering produces one of the most important things in the Christian experience. So let me read this again. Not only so, but we glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Oh, perseverance produces character and character produces hope. Perseverance, think about this, means steadfastness, fortitude, heroic endurance, staying power. Christians cry out all the time, I want to know God. I want to be a real follower. I want to be a fully devoted follower of Jesus. I want a deep faith. And God says to us, yes, well, part of that process is suffering. This is where faith grows deep and real. And it is right here that so many people leave the faith. 
It's in the moment of testing, in the moment of suffering, oh, the church, or they blame God, or they blame themselves or others, and they actually missed that the moment of crisis was actually the thing that was going to give them the deeper, more robust faith. God uses the falseness of this world and the brokenness of ourselves and others to produce good. And out of this perseverance, it suddenly becomes a place for love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And then this thing called hope, assured expectation is given. But in honesty, we go, God, what I read and what my life looks like is so different. Life is hard. And I know what God has already done for me. But there's so little victory down here. So many of my friends and family have walked away from the faith. Other people don't care. And, and I, just, I just don't get it. I just don't know. I mean, what's going on here, Lord? And Paul then says, look, listen, it's so important that you don't miss what God is up to. He says, look, our hope doesn't put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. Oh, this is so important. The Holy Spirit is the love of God in us, around us, and through us. There is not one experience you have had with Jesus or the Father that did not come through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the access point. He's the only door. He's the door opener. He's the love we need. But as a church, we need to ask for more of the Holy Spirit. But much of the time, we don't want to hang out with the Holy Spirit because we're afraid or our theology says we shouldn't or history or pain or self-sufficiency. And yet, if we want to live a normal Christian life or actually see a church do something significant, we need the Holy Spirit's prayer. We need the Holy Spirit's power. We need the Holy Spirit's gifts. We need the Holy Spirit's character. We need the Holy Spirit's mission. We need the Holy Spirit's truth. We need his comfort. We need his teaching. We need his witness. We need his conviction. We need him every hour. Oh, how we need the Holy Spirit. And most of us sitting here who are Christians would say, yeah, I intellectually agree with everything you just said, but the reality of the Holy Spirit and the presence of the Holy Spirit, he's called the love of God inside of me, but it doesn't translate. It doesn't seem to have staying power. It doesn't, have to, it doesn't seem to have sway or ongoing ability. It doesn't seem that he and his love is transformational in my life. Oh, and then when suffering comes, even less so. Okay, I just want you to park that because I'm going to come back to that at the end. Just hang there for a moment because it's pretty amazing what he does by the end. Paul sort of pauses and says, okay, I just I want to remind you of the hope you've got. The Holy Spirit's in you. The literal love of God is in you. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But I just want to say this to you again. Verse 6. You see, just at the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Oh, powerless. What a, what a strong word. What a summary word of chapter 1, chapter 2, most of chapter 3. We're spiritually dead, the Bible says, powerless. We're under the dynamic of sin. We're under the power of sin. We cannot not sin. Powerless. Every person is sinned, powerless. All of us rightly condemned, powerless. All of us under the just wrath of God, powerless. All of us with a heart of sin, the most religious and unreligious, kind, unkind, wicked, righteous. Remember, baby, teen, young adult, adult, those born, those dying, under sin, powerless. None of us can stop death. We go to funerals all the time, powerless. And if that's not bad enough, if you just let the scriptures speak, we're even more powerless when we see the role of the evil one in our life. 
2 Corinthians 4, 4, the God of this age has blinded the minds of non-Christians, unbelievers. They, they cannot even see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Powerless. We've got nothing at the table. And yet in that powerless state, Christ died for you, for us. I mean, this is where heaven and earth meet. Every Good Friday, millions upon millions, actually billions, gather to mourn, to grieve, to look at the horror of the crucifixion, which then, of course, leads to wonder. And I just want to share this again. Unlike what so many people think, Good Friday, Jesus' death, was not a mistake. It was not a political act. It was not the religious leaders uh, getting their way. It was not the political leaders getting their way. It was not the kingdom of darkness overcoming the prince of peace as he's trying to introduce a stronger, more beautiful kingdom. All those factors are true, but heaven's view is what's significant. All of the chaos that happens on Good Friday was being used to accomplish the sovereign will of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, who, because of love, decided before time, to come for us. Don't forget what Jesus said just before his execution, his unjust murder, really, in John 10, 18. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I receive from my Father. Oh, this is all, God's in total control. Uh, Paul continues with this. I'm going to read this slow because it's so powerful. Verse 7. Very rarely... Will anyone die for a good person, a righteous person? Though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. <clears throat> but God demonstrated his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? Let that verse think, sink in. How much more will we be saved at the end when God's wrath comes in the world through Jesus. For if we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of Jesus' his son. How much more, having been reconciled, be, being in friendship, shall we be saved through Jesus' life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. I mean, okay, well, we were sinners. Well, we were hostile towards God, when we had this natural, built-in hostility towards God, his life, his laws, his love, he keeps coming for us. He bought us back. <clears throat> he met us. He changes us. And so we get life. We get life. Or you could say we get rest. Okay. Some of you are like, well, I don't feel a lot of rest or relief after that. I know. So let's take some time. If you are joining us today, and again, um, seeker, skeptic, other faith, no faith, spiritual. You who have not met Jesus in a personal, real way, just hear God's word today. He actually says you're powerless, whether you believe it or not, and ungodly, and a sinner, and because of activity, an enemy of God. That's heaven's view. And yet, he loves you. He loves you so much, he wants to know you, he wants to walk with you. It doesn't need to be this way. God's love, this is incredible, is totally unmotivated by anything in us. The word of God has spoken to you today. Well, you are still a sinner. Christ died for you. 
God demonstrated his own love for you in this. While you were still God's enemy, he wanted to reconcile you to himself through Jesus. He wants to save you and free you and give you assurance and confidence in this life and life to come and purpose in this life. And actually, death doesn't need to be the end. And forgiveness is available. Would you not bend your knee and say to Jesus, I want all that and more? Have mercy on me, a sinner? Like I ask almost every week, what do you do with Jesus? What do you do with what God says about you? Will you accept the gift? Uh, Many of us who are in this moment, we're Christians. And, And what is the Spirit of God saying to us? Well, two things, and let's start here. Let's be honest about the trials we're facing. Suffering is a normal part of the Christian life. And God will use pain and suffering to accomplish his work and purpose in our life. Oh, but, and I know some of you got really, really, really sort of mm, defensive or freaked out a few minutes ago when I was saying this. But don't misunderstand what Paul is saying here. Because a lot of churches really mess up in this moment. I love when one person wrote this. We are to never praise God for or rejoice in evil things. Never. They're not part of God's original creation. And he's going to eradicate them one day. Paul calls on us to rejoice in the midst of affliction and rejoice uh, because of affliction because we know God's going to use them for a better thing, but he never asks us to be joyful about the affliction itself. You never say, oh God, thanks thanks so much for cancer. Thanks so much for death. No, 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 no. He's going to eradicate all this stuff. He says, we have joy in the middle of it because God's going to redeem the bad thing. Peter has the same conversation to his communities. He looks injustice right in the face, suffering right in the, in the face, in a work context. And he says in 1 Peter 2.19, uh, for it is commendable if a person bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because he is conscious of God. What in the world could make unjust suffering worthwhile as a Christian? I mean, is it even possible to redeem it? John, you don't understand the work I'm, I'm at. I'm targeted for being good or kind, or I, I don't don't compromise, or or my boss is out of control. Can God even work here? Oh, yes. God is so pleased when his people react well in wrong situations. It actually becomes the place we get to imitate Christ the most. Do not sin when being sinned against. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Actually turning the other cheek. We all know that we have the love of God. We also know we're going to give an account. And so, actually, these environments can grow this perseverance thing in us. He says in 1 Peter 2.20, How is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and enduring it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. What Peter's saying, and Paul would say a huge amen to this, is you don't get credit for suffering if you do something wrong. I mean, if you steal at work or lie or cheat or you sexually use someone or you're a jerk or do something wrong or lazy or cut corners and you get in trouble, God's not going to go, well done. Oh, I'm suffering for Jesus. No, you shoplifted. You're in trouble. This is wrong. But if you actually suffer for doing good, the Lord will will reward you. And remember, I've used this verse so many times. 1 Peter 2.21 is so incredible. He says, to this you are all called, every Christian, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his footsteps. In other words, Jesus' suffering is the common example for every Christian. 
And Paul, uh, Peter's words here are even more wild because this is not some distant thing. This is a close thing. The idea comes from a little kid learning how to draw letters in front or beside a teacher. We're literally imitating that close. That's why it says in James 1-2, consider it pure joy, brothers and sisters, when you face trials and uh, trials of many kinds, because you know testing of your faith develops perseverance. Or Philippians 3.10, I want to know Christ. I want to know the power of his resurrection. I want to participate in his sufferings. You're like, John, I'm feeling no rest and no relief. What I'd love you to do is I'd like you to think about today in this moment and over the week, the trials you're actually facing in your life right now. Is it sickness? Is it the death of a loved one? Is it the loss of a job? Is it the loss of a marriage? Maybe you don't have enough money. Is it a wayward child? Is it aging parents? Is it a midlife crisis? Maybe you've got no spark uh, in, in your love for God anymore. Is it ongoing sin? Is it the presence of the demonic? Are you attacked for your faith? Do you, do you actually struggle and have mental illness? Um, do those around you look down upon you? Is it family issues that never go away? Is it just living in the world that we live in? Is it the fears that you're facing? Is it old age? age? What is it? When is the last time as a Christian, and this is to Christians, you actually said, Lord, would you show me how you are going to use this to produce in me perseverance and, and hope and character? This is this profound reframing where actually the suffering moment becomes the absolute deepening moment in the Christian faith. We don't, we don't thank God for the actual evil in the world, but we say, God, how are you going to use this to your glory and my betterment? Some of you need to sit down with God this week and have a conversation and ask him, how are you using my current suffering to produce in me something I've never seen before? Oh, but let's maybe take a step back and go a little bit deeper. The real thing out of this passage that actually is the rest relief moment is back in verse 5. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the actual love of God already in you. Remember I shared the story a few years ago? My, my father-in-law and mother-in-law have this incredible boat. It's quite large. And we were out whale watching in the Bay of Fundy. That's where they come from. And it was this stunning day. It was this beautiful day. There was no wind. The sun was out. It was like just glass. And that is the best time to go whale watching. We're in this beautiful boat. And we're there. And suddenly this whale breaches, right? It breaches out of the water. And we're so excited. And I was yelling to my son, come on. It's, it's there. And he's like, I've seen one before. I'm so bored. I'm like, people fly from Japan and South Korea and, and England to see this. He's like, oh, I've seen it. Okay, back to your iPad, different conversation. But I'm just like, this is incredible watching this whale breach. And it was really far away. And, and if you recall the story, then another whale breached closer to the boat. And it was even more grand and more majestic. We were like, oh, this is incredible. I can't believe we get to see this. And, and then unexpectedly, shockingly to us, this huge whale, probably twice the size of the boat, and we were in a big boat, breached right beside the boat. It was like right there. And we're like, oh, my goodness. And as it came up, we saw the blowhole. And then it actually blew like out of the blowhole. I was like, this is like a National Geographic. And oh, my goodness. And then all the spray landed on my mother-in-law and on my wife. What we didn't know is the spray isn't water. It's full of mucus. Totally disgusting. And I, I never forgot after that really epic moment, thinking about actually the Holy Spirit. See, the Holy Spirit is the love of God in us. 
So many of us as Christians love thinking about the Holy Spirit when he's very, very far away. Oh, look, he's way over there, and it's so cool I can see him. Don't get too close. Others of us are like, oh, I love when he's sort of near the boat, and I get to see him, and, and, and I can sense him. Others of us are like, I just want the sprinkle. I just, I, you know, more charismatic. I just, I just need a little bit of the anointing. All three of those things aren't right. The crazy thing about the Christian faith is the invitation is not to watch him from a distance or watch him close or even have a little bit of his presence. You actually have to get out of the boat and go swimming with the whale and you can't control the whale because the whale is bigger than you. The love of God is only found in the Holy Spirit. How do I know? How do I walk? And how do I understand the love of God? How do I understand the grace, the ongoing eternal undeserved mercy of God through Jesus? The fellow, It's the spirit of Jesus. You can't watch this from a distance. You can't be in the safety of a boat. You have to walk with him personally. You have to actually know he's good but not safe. And here's the wild thing. Every single Christian within the sound of my voice, you already have the love of God in you, among you. And then the question you're asking is, well, how do I experience that love? How do I walk in this? And that's why in a different part of the Bible, Paul was inspired to utter this prayer in Ephesians 3 that helps Romans 5 become real. Uh, Ephesians 3.17, And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, yep, done, Romans 5, may have the power together with all the other Lord's holy people to, to grasp how wide and how long and high and deep is the love of Christ. He prays that everyday Christians, individually and as a group, would not only intellectually understand, but actually on a personal level encounter this love. Oh God, let them comprehend and understand the multiple dimensions of God's love, this love that breaks all that we can think about, the love that bursts all the categories like a water breaking the dam, a love that is so consuming. And Paul says so many Christians that walk with Jesus and are justified, right, and redeemed, they do not believe, they do not understand, they do not experience God's love so that they'd end up not loving each other because they're so distant from the Spirit. And, and Paul pushes us beyond intellectually knowing God to actually encountering. Remember, in the Bible, when you talk about knowing, knowing is not just right thinking, it's right experience. It's right experience and right thinking together. And so he keeps praying and he says, he says, I pray that they would know this love that surpasses knowledge. Ephesians 3, 19. That you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. To know something that surpasses knowledge is to know something that's not knowable. It's, it's deliberate paradox. And yet Paul says it is possible if you ask God to know this love that is not knowable. And then he prays this thing, Holy Spirit, God, fill your people to overflowing so they will know what love is. And here's the connection, ready? What we miss so much of the time is love is directly connected to rest. Almost everything we crave as human beings is connected to the want to rest. There's not a Christian leader, there's not a Christian pastor, there's not a fellow believer, there's actually not a fellow human being that I've talked to that does not primordially, at their core, desire, crave rest. And what many of us don't catch, is you cannot have that oh, relief, that deep, deep rest 
unless you know you're loved. Psychologists will tell you this. But this is at the DNA level. And the wild thing is that the love of God, who is the Spirit of God, is already in you. One wrote this. When one truly understands, they are loved. It is like the exhale of someone who has been holding their breath out of fear, worry, or insecurity. Fear, worry, insecurity. It is blissful rest when someone who realizes they no longer need to perform, but they just are loved. The incredible thing about Romans 5 is not only does he reframe suffering and bring light out of darkness, he actually says that the love of God, the literal love of God, is around you, is upon you, is in you. The unknowable is knowable if you ask. One of the fruit of the Spirit is love. The invitation is to ask and pray out of Ephesians 3 that the love of God would become intellectually and experientially knowable. And the more you know the love of God and the more you are close to the Spirit of God, who is the love of God the Father, the more you will not only have relief, the more you'll encounter love and the more you will actually find deep rest. This is only the beginning of a conversation. But maybe we could just pray this really quick, like this. Father and Son, send the love of God, the Holy Spirit, among us. To we who have not met Jesus, lovingly show us our sin, our lostness, and our powerlessness, and then show us the love of God in Jesus. Father and Son, send the Holy Spirit to many that are suffering in small and big ways. Actually, I'm going to ask boldly that you would bring up things in people's minds that they are suffering with or have struggled with or have never been resolved and actually would holy conversations take place this week where people could say to you, Lord, I hate this, I'm struggling with this, this is terrible. How are you going to reframe this and use this? But lastly, I pray for myself in this community that I love so much, I'd ask this. Since the Holy Spirit is in every Christian within the sound of my voice, and Holy Spirit, you are the love of God, I pray out of Ephesians 3 that the unknowable thing, the love, would be knowable. That somehow in this moment, there would be a holy threshold that's crossed. And that there would be this growing, God-given awareness of the height, and the depth, the power, the measure of God's love. I just pray for so many people in this moment not to observe the whale far away or near the boat or even be sprinkled a little bit, but to actually be encountered by the Spirit of God. God, we need to know the love of God the Father in this moment so we can rest. Would there be this growing sense of love that produces rest, which is unnatural in this very anxious moment? This is what we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
Thank you so much for listening. If you would like to learn more about us, please visit our website at sanctuschurch.com. There you'll find ways to support our ministry and God's vision for this church. Last but not least, if you like what you're hearing, be sure to hit that follow button to be notified when another episode releases. I hope this was encouraging for you and may God bless you. Have an amazing week.